Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I do want to dig into that Deutsche Bank merger. I think that this is fascinating from a lot of perspectives. Well, let's talk about it. Let's Let's talk about it because it's been on the cards for absolutely ages. And finally, I guess it's official now that they're actually in talks. Do we just assume it's executed? (laughs) Um, Well, I think that there probably are uh, a whole bunch of potential challenges here still. I mean, I think that the question is what form is this going to take? Is this merger? And I think uh, Luigi Zingales actually has some views on this. He's a finance professor at the University of Chicago uh, at the Booth School of Business, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Uh, Luigi, thank you so much for being here. What do you think about this merger? So this is a merger of uh, failed banks, banks that don't succeed in the marketplace by themselves, and they have to merge because they're very weak even if in the past they have shown that they are not very good at merging. Because uh, if you remember, uh, Commerzbank uh, comes from a very bad merger with Dresden, and uh, uh, Deutsche Bank tried to integrate uh, Deutsche Postbank and uh, did not do very well. And then at some point tried to sell it and they couldn't even sell it. So I don't think they have a good record in merging. And uh, the only reason why they are merging is because they're trying to basically achieve three things. One is uh, fire more people, and uh, they have to have the permission of uh, the German government to fire 30,000 people. They got it, though. It they got like it. it. That, that's uh, an industry. It comes from a social democratic uh, minister. So I- imagine what the conservative would have done. Uh, so, in, uh, so that's one. Uh, the second is probably they can gain a little bit of market power. Uh, but most importantly, they certainly become too big to fail. And so they... They are trying to sell that this is the German national champion. Now, Germany has a lot of good things going for itself, but this is not one of those. Uh, Deutsche has a tradition of cheating. I think there's uh, more, uh, pay more fines than is worth in the equity market today. Uh, because, and uh, so I don't think, and, and it's not very profitable. So I think that uh, a bank in this condition is not in the situation to acquire another one. And the fact that uh, that's the only thing that they figure out means uh, how bad the banking sector is in Europe in this moment. Luigi, for a long time, we've referred to Germany as the powerhouse of Europe. The banking sector is certainly not the powerhouse of Europe. Why does the German banking sector have these problems still? Actually, I think that that's uh, um, strategic uh, to maintain industry. I think that uh, uh, the banking sector in Italy, in, in Germany, is dominated by uh, the Sparkasse and the cooperative, and both these institutions don't have profits as an objective. They have the, basically the well-being of their partners and their um, of the co- of the companies they finance. So I, I think that uh, the, the banking sector in Germany is postponed to the industrial sector. And that's the reason why the industrial sector is so strong and the banking sector is so weak. I'm struggling to understand uh, how Commerce Bank, how Deutsche Bank still has about a 16% stake in Commerce Bank and will probably roll over that stake into uh, the Deutsche Bank Commerce Bank merger. I mean, it basically is this nationalization. I think that uh, uh, 
Germany, uh, that is very tough with uh, the other European countries in terms of state aid, when it comes to its own banks, has been extremely generous in state aid. I think that uh, most Americans don't know that uh, TARP is nothing by comparison to what Germany did for its bank in 2008. So I guess if we can broaden out a little bit, given the fact that we do have the Fed week uh, coming up and we have this persistently weak data in Europe, is this Deutsche Bank Commerce Bank merger emblematic of the persistent weakness in the euro region uh, that could potentially deepen beyond what people are expecting? I think that that's certainly one reason. I think that uh, Germany does fear a, a slowdown. Uh, th- there are two views of the world here. There are those who say that there has been a, a temporary thing due to a couple of accidents like uh, the, the low water in the Rhine River that made it difficult to export and given some regulation in the car industry that uh, slowed down production. And then now we're back to, to normal. Um, I am more sort of uh, worried, especially with the softness coming out of China. China is a big export market for Germany. And if this is a, an issue, uh, German manufacturing will suffer. And nobody talks about this, but if we were to go into a very hard Brexit, the problem would not just be for the United Kingdom. Germany exports a lot of car to the UK. And so a hard Brexit will be a pretty bad news for Europe in general, but particularly for Germany. So with the, with this context, I think that uh, uh, there is a need to do something with the banking sector that is uh, uh, too big and too unprofitable. Uh, and part of this unprofitability is the fact that uh, uh, the cost to income ratio is very high. So unfortunately, I think uh, restructuring and uh, job cuts are on, on the line. Uh, the question is, why do you need to merge to do that? And and I fear that this is just a, a political play that uh, on the one hand, uh, the, the German politician allow for uh, job cuts. On the other hand, they do form a uh, national champion that would be easier for uh, the German government to control and direct. Luigi, can a national champion compete on the international stage? If it is uh, efficient, yes, but uh, given uh, the record of Deutsche, I, my answer is no. Luigi Zingales, fantastic to catch up with you. Finance professor at University of Chicago Booth School. are so lucky to have Heron Seagram joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. Heron Seagram uh, is a New York University Stern Professor of Finance. Uh, Heron, the $2.1 billion valuation on its face for Lyft's IPO, and I believe that values the company at about $18 plus billion. How do you even value that? Uh, Thanks for having me, Lisa. So um, the way to look about Lyft is think about it as a platform business, and if you take the EV to sales for the market overall, it's about two two and a half. But generally, platform businesses are priced between seven and ten x. 
So if you take the current uh, revenues on face value at $2 billion, $2.1 billion, if you grow that at 25% per year for the next five years, that gives a future value of roughly between 30 and $35 billion. And if you discount that back at the cost of capital, that'll give you roughly around 20 to $21 billion. So investors are pretty much paying for the future rather than the current state of affairs for this company. This is important. They're paying for the future, and they're paying for the future at a very expensive time. It just raises a question. Are people getting in at the peak? Is Lyft uh, and, 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 and are, are Lyft and Uber kind of trying to capitalize here on this potential peak year 2019? That is absolutely right. It is more a liquidity event uh, for the private equity investors who got into Lyft and Uber earlier. So they are cashing out, no doubt. Um, but I have a feeling this valuation would grow into this. Um, so although they are catching it at peak, um, I have a feeling this company, I'm optimistic generally about this company. You're optimistic about the co- company and, and, and thinking that people will probably uh, get good value or at least fair value if they buy into the IPO. Uh, fair value is better. <laughs> I would say. Not good value, fair value. But this raises a question really on on a broader level because right now the S&P is poised for its best quarterly performance since 1998. Right. We are, we are looking at a market that is so uh, robust and, and melting up and there is a question, you know, is this a bad time to get in or is it also fair value? Um, IPOs tend to come towards the peaks of the market uh, because original investors, early investors are trying to cash out. But I have a feeling S&P has some room to run, especially uh, when Federal Reserve is on hold and U.S. is the best place to invest compared to the rest of the globe. Uh, I have a feeling this melt-up is going to continue for a while. Okay, and then what does that say for the other IPOs that are slated, like the Ubers and all the other high-profile unicorns? Um, Uber is um, planning to go to the market between 100 and 120 billion. It is similar again with the thinking about that as a platform business, and they are also uh, diversified into other types of businesses. So, market is again attaching a seven to between seven and ten multiple to this company but i don't think it is the current uh, current valuation we are being we are valuing these companies on a forward multiple that is my humble opinion just want <laughs> your thoughts on on lyft and uber and how one company is very very focused on what it does it's a ride hailing service that's lyft uber seems to be spread out a little bit more doing various different things what are your thoughts on the kind of premium you attach to the focus company versus the one that's trying to do a whole lot more Uh, Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Uh, Good to be with you. Um, There are two types of businesses, if you think about it. It's a focused company. Um, As you said, they're very focused on ride-hailing, and uh, they are planning to expand the business. They are currently in the North American region right now, so that's their target market. But when you take Uber, for example, they have more levers to pull. So it is more of a diversified business. So... Uh, investors think about these businesses in a different way. Um, single focus business can be valued in a different way, and a diversified business would be valued in a different way. So for us to compare these two companies at this moment, I don't think it is advisable. Just in terms of how mature some of the companies are coming to market as well, I think a lot of people find that interesting relative to where we were, say, maybe 10, 20 years ago, where relatively young companies would come to market. They would become public companies for very good reasons. Now it seems they remain private for a whole lot longer. Professor, why do you think that is? 
because uh, private market uh, fundings are available. If you take Masa's son buying into Uber, so uh, three, four billion dollars being pumped into. Even last week, he invested into uh, uh, Grab in Singapore. So the private market funding is readily available. Cash is cheap at this um, lower interest rates. That's why these companies are staying longer private. They have no need to come to the public markets, but they want to cash out, right? Um, if they have, you have gotten in for take, for example, what yeah. Master Sun did with Alibaba, put in 20 million, and the stake is sitting at 120 billion today. So people are comfortable sitting with it in the private market. They don't have to really cash out. But when markets are, that are such a high, why don't you take advantage of it? It's well, a great liquidity some pe- event. Some people would say that the availability of capital in the private markets to some degree, and you can tell me what, to what degree you think this is true, is breeding arrogance of leadership of some of these tech companies. And when they do come public, the ownership structures are different. So well, let me make this really simple. For a typical investor who's looking to participate in an IPO, they won't actually own the company, won't have the voting rights that maybe they would have got 10, 20 years ago because the leadership are able to keep hold of the ownership and voting rights, the management of the company in a way that maybe they didn't many years ago. Why do you think that is changing? And do you think eventually there will be pushback from the investor community? There will be eventually be a pushback, but I don't think that is the case right now. Investors have uh, come to terms with it. This is the norm for technology companies. You take Sergey Brin, Mark uh, Zuckerberg, all the top leaders. I don't know. I don't want to call them top, but the leaders, uh, they t- tend to hold on a majority of the voting rights. Investors are not currently punishing the valuations of these companies. I know it weakens the corporate uh, governance um, structure of the company. Um, but I don't think that is impacting the valuation. Maybe there might be a pushback in the future, but I don't think I don't see that right now. Do you think that these companies being public will impede their growth because these own, these these leaders have never been accountable to shareholders in the same kind of way and having to sort of deal with quarter to quarter expectations versus longer term plans and just burning through cash? Uh, Lisa, you're right. It's going to be tough for them. Uh, They had their wish when they're private. They can do whatever they want to. Now they're accountable to the market and the investors. But when you come into public markets with valuations of 20 billion, 120 billion, investors would give a leeway for those um, leaders because they have a proven track record. If these valuations hold up for the next year or two, they have proven that they can grow this business. And I think investors are going to be on the sideline letting these companies grow on their own. Heron Seagram. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Boeing shares down uh, a little bit less than 2.5% following news that the FAA had been warned that Boeing uh, had too much power in the approval process seven years ago, and they had not paid any attention. This looks terrible for the FAA, looks terrible for Boeing. Uh, Here to talk about the potential ramifications for it is Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Brooke, just give us a sense of what the uh, Seattle Times investigation found that really showed this should have been on the radar of the FAA, and frankly, Boeing as well. 
No, absolutely. I mean, and I think to your point, so this is seven years ago, 2012. This is actually pre the Dreamliner battery problems as well, which did, of course, result in the FAA grounding those planes. So this has been sort of an ongoing issue that everybody should have been rather abundantly aware of and perhaps looking at a little bit more aggressively. So a couple of things from the Seattle Times investigation, what they have found is, you know, it's been well documented that the FAA has been outsourcing certification work to the aircraft manufacturers. Now, this is something that's actually gotten approval from people in government and sort of, you know, won over uh, their support because the FAA does not have very much money. And this is also a rather timely process to get these aircraft certified. Before you continue, is there some sort of external check on the in-house corporate overseers that are overseeing themselves? Well, in theory, the FAA has the ability to approve the Boeing employees that are, you know, put in place to act as sort of officials of the FAA as far as the certification process. And if they have issues or, you know, conflicts of interest that arrive, they can replace them. But what the Seattle Times is reporting is that employees did raise concerns about certain Boeing managers and their managers at the FAA basically overruled that and were pushing them to sort of speed up the certification process to try to get this Boeing plane out. Because remember, the reason why Boeing was investing in the 737 MAX is because Airbus came out with the A320neo, which had much more fuel efficient engines, was very attractive to airlines for a lot of different reasons, and Boeing needed a response and they needed one very quickly. They were already behind Airbus in terms of production. Um, You know, the other really key things from the Seattle Times report for me were the details of the safety analysis that Boeing did on the maneuvering characteristics augmentation system, which is that flight control system that's being sort of pinpointed as a possible cause for both of these fatal crashes. Now, so in that safety analysis, which Boeing did as part of the certification process, as part of this outsourcing of the work, um, they understate the thrust that can put uh, the degree of thrust on the plane's nose down. Um, They also fail to acknowledge the fact that the system resets. So if the plane's nose is diving and the pilot corrects that, the system can go through the process all over again. Which is what happened. The whole lurching that we we heard about uh, with the latest crash. And that really sort of undermines Boeing's narrative because with the first crash, they said, oh, well, pilots should have known about this. They have all this, you know, basic training of how to handle a dive. Well, pilots are trained for sort of a continuous dive. That's not what happened. This was sort of up and down, step by step. And, you know, with the degree of thrust the system is capable of, that was sort of what led to this being so disastrous. So I want to pick up on this idea that it goes counter to Boeing's narrative. I'm wondering how much liability Boeing is going to have here, given the fact that they were aware of potential risks, the fact that they were lobbying the FAA and the FAA was not getting them in check and they are their own overseers, the fact that that they have that onus, does that leave them with more responsibility uh, financially? I think this point. the fact that the risks were understated in this uh, safety analysis that was submitted to the FAA is not a good look for Boeing, especially because they're now saying, okay, well, no, this is actually how it worked. Um, I think, you know, you're already starting to see sort of lawsuits from the families of, of the people who died in these crashes. I am not a lawyer, so I'm not, you know, going to speculate onto the outcome of that, but just looking at it, it, it does not look good for Boeing. I mean, just in terms of 
their culpability here in terms of not really taking ownership of some of these issues. I, I think that just raises a lot of questions. And, and and not to not to diminish the personal tragedy aspect of this. I mean, a lot of people, hundreds of people lost their lives uh, because of what happened. I do have to wonder from a business perspective with Boeing, is the big risk, the liabilities, the potential lawsuits, or is it that companies, airlines are not going to order from Boeing because they have that much less confidence? I think the bigger risk as far as, um, you know, Boeing's liability is, first of all, what happens as a result of this grounding. And a lot of it is dependent on how long the grounding is and what regulators ultimately decide is the problem here. Um, So after the Lion Air crash, I mean, Boeing was sort of saying, well, this is a software issue. They were supposedly working on a fix that was reportedly supposed to be out by year end. Obviously, that did not happen. And said we had the Ethiopian Airlines crash, which in my mind sort of ups the stakes as far as how you actually fix this. I don't think it's as simple anymore as just a software download. I think you're certainly going to have to have retraining of pilots which is going to be expensive. That's probably going to be a bill that Boeing has to front, including the cost of you know replenishing re- airlines' lost revenue for having these planes out of service. Um, now, the more dire scenario is that the FAA is forced to sort of revisit the whole certification of the 737 MAX design to say, okay, we need to be more rigorous about this. We need to go through a more in-depth process. There is also a question about the FAA and what happens here uh, with that agency, especially given the fact that any potential uh, badness around the organization was just magnified by the fact that they were so late to the game in terms of halting the use of the 737 MAX 8 jet. I'm wondering, is there uh, any potential recourse that lawmakers could take with the FAA, uh, possibly appropriating a little more money so that they could have outside investigators, or uh, perhaps making sure that they have the personnel who are not going to do this again? I certainly think that this idea of outsourcing the certification work to Boeing is going to be under a lot of scrutiny. You're certainly going to have a lot of hearings. Now, I will say the Trump administration actually expanded that outsourcing program just a couple of months ago to include um, you know, other types of products. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out because, of course, the Trump administration is very big on deregulation. Right. And obviously, in this case, and some of the president's tweets would suggest that, you know, we we need to have stronger oversight here. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that tension plays out. But I will say the FAA is not the only game in town anymore. Like it used to be that the FAA's word carried in the aviation industry. And what you saw in this case, which I just think is remarkable, is that other aviation regulators are saying, we don't really trust what you have to say. We're going to make our own decisions as far as whether or not this plane is airworthy. Other other regulators are talking about internationally. Right. I and, mean, I think right. you saw that with like how quick they were to ground the plane, regardless of what the FAA was saying. Which to me raises also a question of how this affects the companies in the United States that are uh, regulated by the FAA and others that are outsourcing some of their their uh, their services to me it makes me wonder whether that's going to put these companies at a disadvantage competitively internationally because people will have less faith uh, that they have truly passed all of the tests well i mean i think so any of these aircrafts have to be sort of certified by all of these aviation regulators anyway and so like all of these companies are going to be very intimately familiar with the criteria of these other regulators but what you could see to your point is that you know the europeans the brazilians china steps up their scrutiny and they have more stringent requirements than the faa because they feel like they need to fill that void did any other agencies sign off on the 737 max jet in the united states no internationally 
Uh, I would have to double check that, but I would believe, I mean, if they're flying, I would Then they probably so, are. Yeah. So it might be the FAA that's got egg on its face right now, but it seems like perhaps it wasn't them alone that signed off on it. No, so, it wasn't. Yeah. But uh, so Brazil and the Europeans did push back on some of really? the recertification process. They ultimately, you know, put that plane in the sky, but they did have more concerns and there was a little bit more of a pushback uh, in those conversations. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, Brooke Sutherland is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, and she is fabulous. Read her columns. You can find them online. You can find them on the Bloomberg. Brooke Sutherland, uh, she is really one of our top-notch columnists here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.